What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. And last week, organizers of the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, a grassroots group that had been providing bail support and other resources to stop cop city protesters, had their offices raided and were arrested. They have since been released, but charges still loom. We are joined this morning by Asia Arnold, an Atlanta-based journalist and founding editor of local outlet, outlet Mainline. Her reporting on Atlanta's cop city project has been featured in The Intercept, Vice, and The Appeal, where her latest is titled Atlanta Police Target Bail Fund Organizers in Latest crackdown on Stop Cop City movement. Good morning, Asia. Good morning, Kat. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on the show. So much happening. I'm trying to figure out where to start, but I I, I guess let's uh, start with walking my listeners through what happened last week when the Atlanta Solidarity Fund offices were raided. Sure. Um, We can start there and, you know, just so you know, listeners know Atlanta, it, things are heating up in Atlanta as current as this morning. Um, our city council legislative body denied over a thousand constituents um, in opposition to Cop City and moved legislation through just um, early this morning around 5.30 a.m. Um, against 98% of people uh, voicing their dissent no. And the raids and arrests of the Atlanta Solidarity Fund organizers is one important piece of why Atlantans do not want this project to go through. Um, But starting with what happened last Wednesday on May 31st, um, Atlanta police officers in conjunction with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation arrived at the residence of these three organizers in a full-on SWAT raid heavily armed, uh, over a dozen officers uh, with warrants um, charging these three individuals with money laundering and charity fraud. And to be clear, the amounts of the amount of money that we're talking about does not exceed $60,000, which is very minimal compared to the astrological amounts that, you know, these charges are very unique in general, but if they ever are wielded, they're usually wielded towards you know, for example, with uh, Steve Bannon, Trump, uh, Trump's advisor, with the We Will Build the Wall, we were talking millions of dollars, right? And no SWAT raid, uh, as I recall, was wielded in those arrests or in that prosecution. So this is, that was a very chilling moment for organizers and for residents in Atlanta to see that uh, financial support or any material support of this movement could be construed by prosecutors and the state in a way that paints them to be these crim- a web of criminals um, that are all working together under some guise of domestic terrorism, which is what they are charging 42 other people who are protesters, some of them not even people directly affiliated with the movement, some of them just innocent festival goers uh, at an event for Stop Cop City are being charged with domestic terrorism under this uh, image that the state is trying to paint. Yeah, I think I want to walk through the events of the music festival too, but let's sit here for a second. ATL Solidarity Fund, what kind of organization is it historically? What kind of work has it been engaged in? Atlanta Solidarity Fund is at its core a mutual aid group. It is part of a larger community that is um, centered on collective care in Atlanta. 
they began their work in around 2016. Prior to them, there was another popular bail fund, the Georgia Civil Disobedience Fund, uh, that started around 2014 or so. Um, and then ASF started and took the torch simply because they had more capacity. Uh, Black Lives Matter was really taking form and gaining steam in our city with a lot of protests. So a bail fund was very much needed, right? So ASF began their work in 2016, long before Cop City was in public consciousness, before there was ever a Cop Stop Cop City movement. They are part of a, um, later they were, they became incorporated into a 501c3, which was um, registered with the state in 2020 and then officially a 501c3 in 2021, I believe. And that 501c3 is Network for safe communi Safer Communities. And it's run by the same people, but they have multiple initiatives that are different forms of mutual aid, including food distribution, police watch, police accountability, and then the bail fund. And their bail fund not only pays to get people out of jail that are arrested for uh, exercising their First Amendment rights, they also pay for criminal defense attorneys throughout the entire process after an arrest is made. What kind of impact does destabilizing the infrastructure or the activities of the, the Atlanta Solidarity Fund have on the health of the Stop Cop City movement from your perch? Well, I think that the ripple effect is huge, and I think it's more insidious whether, whether or not these charges stick, like damage has already been, been done. I mean, from a point of just optics, sending in a SWAT raid with all of these officers, you know, that's that was uncalled for, not necessary at all for nonviolent people, you know, people who are just there helping their community, but from an outsider looking in who might not have any idea what this organization is about or is familiar with what collective care looks like, they are going to see that and believe that people involved in Stop Cop City movement really are, you know, aligned with violent tendencies or even terrorism, which is just absurd, right? So that's one impact that is really difficult to undo because you can't unring the bell, especially once it's out there in mainstream media and circulating to thousands and millions of people. I've also heard reports that, you know, people, organizations that donate food to their other programs have pulled out because they don't want to be affiliated with this group that may or may not be associated with quote unquote domestic terrorists, which is again, just completely untrue. Uh, so that means that people who depend on these programs for food, who again, this has nothing directly to do with uh, cop city organizing. Um, they are without food because some people got sketched out, major organizations and food donors got sketched out and withheld their food donations. And then, of course, the other chilling effect is that I think what the ultimate goal is, is to discourage more people from joining the movement because they are sending a message that if you are perceived to be associated, they don't even need to prove at this point, they're not even trying to prove any direct associations. A lot of these arrests are very flimsy. Uh, the charges, you know, many legal experts say they won't stick, but it's based on a perceived association uh, by the state 
with this movement. So it really blurs this line that is a sacred line in our country and our democracy around the First Amendment and what people can do to support a movement that is seeking to protect a forest, uh, to abolish the police, and to restore democratic practices and eradicate environmental racism here in our city. I think something you did really well, um, Asia, in your article in the appeal that's titled Behind Georgia's Authoritarian Crackdown on Stop Cop City Protests from April 3rd, 2023, was was talk about um, Georgia's domestic terrorism statute the only one of its kind in the country, how broad it is and the way it's being wielded. And I'm wondering if you could break that down for us a little bit, including what other legal experts are saying about the types of charges these folks are facing and the questionable legality of them. Sure. I don't have the uh, legislation right in front of me, but you know, I can recall from the reporting and the multiple legal experts that I spoke to is that that legislation, which was written in 26, I'm sorry, 2017, um, is written so vaguely so that the state could, if they wanted to, really fit any activity into this definition uh, that they have imposed of domestic terrorism. Now, what they're defining as domestic terrorism is not, you know, in in actuality terrorism, and that's kind of the point of what these experts are saying is that they have defined it so broadly that what they are testing out here in Atlanta is that in this legislation, they could, you know, charge people with, for example, on March 5th, earlier this year, there was a huge festival um, to support the Stop Cop City movement. And they had warrants for people for just three things, which was, and one of them including, or two of them including a phone number of the jail support number written on their arms, which is a very common practice and protest is to have the local bail fund number written on your arm in case you are arrested, um, in case you are indiscriminately and illegally arrested and then need support, right? And then one of the other ones was for having mud on their shoes. Now, it, it had rained days before, so many people had mud and dirt on their shoes from walking outside in this forested area. Um, but with this 2017 law that's been written, it's so broad that they were able to fit that on this ground of that legislation, if that makes sense, and charge these people. I think over 20 people were arrested in that one event. Um, The total number is now 42 people facing these charges. And one of the people I spoke to was Stephen Donsinger, who many people might know from his uh, representing Ecuadorian indigenous people in the historic legal case against Chevron, um, in which um, they won billions of dollars against Chevron, and then he was targeted and persecuted for his legal work. Um, but he, so he's very familiar with this uh, type of stuff. But he was saying, amongst other, uh, among other people, just saying that the whole point is to create a web so big that they can fit it and wield it to fit their agenda to criminalize people for collective care, for First Amendment speech, um, for everyday practices that in the city of Atlanta, it's painfully ironic because this is the home of the civil rights movement, right? But this could also, their point is that what is 
uh, frightening about this is that if it happens here, it could happen anywhere in the U.S. Definitely something we are clocking out here in the Bay Area where we engage in very similar activities. Um, I mean, Asia, something that's not lost to me is that the other thing that Georgia has is a lot of active white supremacist activity. Are we seeing the GBI turn their attention to white domestic terrorists in any type of similar fashion? Uh, That's a great question, and that has not been on my radar at all. I have not heard of that, but I do want to, you know, turn the focus back on the GBI and the Attorney General's office and Brian Kemp's office itself because we don't have to look outside of them to see white supremacy in action, right? Um, They are perpetuators of that themselves, so it's not a surprise for me of, like, why their resources, their attention, their energy, and their focus is going where it's going. Um, You know, this is fascism in real time. This is white supremacy in real time. This is environmental racism in real time happening in Atlanta, and it's across party lines, um, especially with the arrest of the Atlanta Solidarity Fund organizers. We saw Governor Brian Kemp and Attorney General Chris Carr teaming up with city, uh, city Democrats to, uh, and district attorneys to execute these warrants and this raid and the arrest, right? And these are Democrats who, when they're in an election year, they're calling Governor Brian Kemp, Chris Carr, and people of the like white supremacists, but when it's not an election year, it doesn't seem to be an issue. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Asia, there was a city council meeting last night to vote on the approval of Cop City moving forward. Were you there? I was there. What was Four the hours. energy? <laughs> what was the energy? What was the tone and tenor and what happened with the vote? Um, the energy in the tenor was absolutely electric and beautiful. Um, over a thousand people were in and out of City Hall yesterday. I arrived around 1230. I left around 3 a.m. with a break in between and then finished uh, the story uh, around 530 a.m. this morning. Um, and keep in mind, this is also Monday during a work day. So there were a lot of people that wanted to be there that it, couldn't be there for various reasons. Um, Atlanta City Hall, I spoke with multiple organizers who are very seasoned organizers. I have lived in Atlanta for decades who were telling me that Atlanta City Hall had never seen anything like that. It was, I feel, very historic in our city in the organizing here. And the city council members you know, thought they were coming up for a vote, but as one person told me, uh, they were actually standing trial. Everyone was watching to see what they would do. They had another chance, this isn't the first time, to do the democratic thing and to send back legislation which was going to authorize taxpayer dollars to be spent on the Cop City facility. And it's now over double what had been previously advertised to the public for the past two years, which is not out of the ordinary for infrastructure projects, which are usually a black hole for taxpayer dollars. But the public is aware of that now. And city council members had the right thing. They could have sent the legislation back to committee, um, meaning that they would have had another year or so to review and to 
try to do this in the right way to hear from more constituents to uh, practice accountability and to live up to a democratic process. And they listened to over 15 hours of public comment. Um, I was keeping up with the tally that was being cut and the final result that was, was that over 98% of those public comments, those 15 hours were against Cop City in general and especially them sending this legislation through. At the end of the day, they it, it passed in an 11 to 4 vote. Only four council members voted no on the legislation. Uh, two council members created a motion to send it back to committee and only four, which would have basically been a major pause button on this project, not a final no. And only four council members voted in support of that motion. So at the end of the day, it went through to a final vote and it passed 11 to four. Asia Arnold, from your perspective, what is really at play here? I mean, I know for, for us, for abolitionists, what Stop Cop City represents, particularly where we are in the movement to eradicate state terror in our communities in this country. But given the pressure that these electeds are facing, how clear the community is in its opposition, are they digging their heels in around the facility or are they digging their heels in around proving a political point? This is now, from my, what I'm looking at, in, in part, a, a power struggle to suppress the people mm -hmm. and shut them down. Your thoughts? That's a great question. They are digging their heels in. I, I think that their minds were made up before that 15 hours of public comment. It's not the first time we've seen it in this battle, right? Um, I heard from sources that the mayor called them in in the office in the morning before they even headed to chambers um, and had a talk. But I can't say what happened, but this is backdoor dealings that's very typical in Atlanta. But to answer your question of, you know, what's really at stake here and like what's really happening, this is democracy. There, there is no democracy happening in Atlanta right now. And I think that's the big problem. What happens if we don't have a democracy? What's at risk? It's our First Amendment rights. It's people's right to be heard. It's people's right to have any say in what happens in their communities. And then when the powers that be, whatever party line they stand on or whatever party they stand with, when they come together, they're, they take down our forests, they destroy our environment, our climate is at risk. There are no borders in this fight. You know, this forest is on all of our land, no matter what state line, whatever state you live in, right? We all breathe air, we all drink water, we all live on the soil. And then the lives that are at highest risk of that are marginalized people, particularly in Atlanta, black and brown people that live in this neighborhood. Um, so it's multiple things at risk, but at the end of the day, this is all of our livelihoods that begins with de our democracy, which is just not happening here in Atlanta. And again, I think if it can happen here, it can happen anywhere. And it, if the shoe fits, wear it. Fascism, right? In my opinion. Well, that's why we had you on the show. We wanted your opinion and uh, really appreciate everything you had to say this morning. The Bay Area, and I can speak for Oakland for sure, we're sending mad love and solidarity. Thank you so much for your work, your writing, and for coming on the show. We'll definitely have you back. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. 
That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>